0: This morning we're continuing our look at David's life and some of the things that transpired during the course of his life. And the past couple of weeks we've been looking at an event and some of the fallout from the event. We're, we're looking at things that took place between David and Bathsheba. We started a couple weeks ago looking at that. And last week we looked as, uh, we looked at David being confronted by Nathan about that. And this morning We're not going to be in 2 Samuel, we've been in 2 Samuel for a while, we're going to be coming back to 2 Samuel in future weeks, but this morning we're going to take a a visit to the Psalms. We're going to be looking at Psalm 51, because Psalm 51 is a psalm that, that David wrote as the Holy Spirit inspired him to do so after Nathan had confronted him. So it shows us what was going on in David's mind and heart in the midst of all of that, as he confessed and as he repented of his sin. And it's also useful for us when it's time for us to pour out our heart to God, to be able to look at a pattern like this and to look at some of the things that are referenced here. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to start off by reading the entire psalm. And then in our time together, we're going to revisit it in five different segments that basically show us a pattern we can follow or an example we could utilize when it's time for us to pour out our hearts before the Lord. So if you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 51. And again, I'm going to read the entire thing. Psalm 51, this is what it says. "Create in me a clean heart, O God, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this portion of your word and for the things that you reveal to us as we look at it together. Lord, we know that it's, it's helpful and it's instructive for us to be able to look at a portion of Scripture like this, because we all go through seasons where the right thing to do, the best thing, the most healthy thing we can do is pour out our hearts before you. And Lord, sometimes we don't know what to pray when we're in the midst of moments like that. We don't know what to say. We don't know how to structure what we're saying. Sometimes it just comes out in all these disjointed thoughts. And obviously, Lord, we know that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you can make sense of that. And we're grateful that you do that. Sometimes, Lord, the only thing we can do is come before you and we just pray one word prayers like help. But Lord, we're grateful for a pattern that we see here in this portion of Scripture that gives us some guidance on what it looks like to come before you with a contrite heart and to come before you eager to confess and eager to repent and and eager to be restored. And so, Lord, we pray that as we think about these things today and as we think about what's revealed to us in this portion of your word, we pray that you'd help us to learn, we pray that we would grow, and we pray that we would be equipped to be able to do what You've called us to do and how to, how to live and how to respond to You in the midst of some of our lowest seasons. So again, Lord, we thank You for this portion of Your Word, and we commit ourselves to You now and pray that You'd speak to us by the power of Your Holy Spirit, and we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. So in my immaturity, I used to think that the goal of life was to make it through mistake-free, What do you think? Is that a good goal? Is that anyone else's goal? By the way, it's not a good goal. I'm just going to spoil the the thunder on that one. It's not a good goal to try and make it through life mistake-free. Now, I'm not encouraging us to make mistakes, but if you preach a message like that to your heart, it starts to become confusing because I've since learned that it's not possible. It's not possible for me to make it through life mistake-free. It's not possible for you to make it through life mistake-free, nor is it healthy, in my opinion, to make that your aim. Because what it could actually do is it could actually produce a form of legalism that can result in an unhealthy form of self-reliance, and then that results in an inability to process mistakes that you make or even outright acts of rebellion when those things occur in your life. You don't know what to do with it. You don't know how to process it. And when you can't process those things in a healthy way, this is what happens. This is the drift of our hearts if we can't process that. We drift toward shame and despair, and neither of those things are healthy. Now, without a doubt, I'm certain that you could point to the worst decision that you've ever made, and since the time change has resulted in a smaller crowd this morning, we're going to take time to just go through, starting with this section over here. So EJ, we'll start it with you and then work back to Phil. Is that, no? All right, never mind. All right. Your worst decision was watching Star Wars Episode One. That's that's your worst decision. Yeah. I, I know it. I know it. All jokes aside, all jokes aside, um, without a doubt, every one of us, myself included, we can point to the worst decision we've ever made. You can point to a moment or a time or an action that you would say, you know what? That's the worst decision I've ever made. And hopefully you're not like, (laughs) so far, right? Worst decision you've ever made. Everybody has one. At some point during the course of your life, you hit a low point. And uh, you crossed a line maybe that you thought you would never cross. Uh, Or you maybe, maybe you did something that you used to castigate others for doing and then you went and did it. So as a follower of Christ... What should we do when moments like that happen or or happen? As followers of Christ, what should we do if we find ourselves in a moment where we're trying to wrestle with the fact that we just made a grievous error? We've taken our life in a direction that's sinful, unhealthy, unwise. What should you do if you find yourself in the midst of your biggest sin or your biggest mistake or your biggest act of rebellion toward God? And maybe I could even add this to that question. What should you do if someone loves you enough to point it out to you, even before you were willing to admit it to yourself? What should you do if you find yourself in that kind of instance? And again, I would say that to one degree or another, we have probably all found ourselves in that kind of situation. Well, in our study of the book of Second Samuel, we looked at chapter 11. It's a very dark chapter in David's life. And then we looked at chapter 12 and chapter 12 is a bit more redemptive, but we read about David's mistakes, and then we read, out, read about the fallout that results from them. And by the way, the greater your position of influence, the more fallout there's going to be in the lives of other people when, if, you know, if you or I take our, our lives in a direction that's unhealthy or unwise, and you can see that fallout magnified in, in David's life in a variety of ways. But I'll even say this, generally speaking, David was a godly man you know when you read through the scriptures when you see his heart when you when you read through the psalms when you read through i mean for many people the book of psalms is their favorite book of the bible the thing was majority the majority of it was written by david and uh, you know but david was not some like you know person that that made it through life mistake free in fact there there are things that you could say in the physical sense that that he did that that i think most of us would be mortified To actually do in our own lives. But I I will say, generally speaking, David was a godly man. He loved the Lord. He sought to honor the Lord with his life. Uh, He sought to model what it looked like to be a man who worshiped the Lord. That was definitely something that throughout the ages, David's example has been a a very helpful example uh, for, for many, many people. He encouraged the people of Israel to do the same, to worship the Lord, to live a life where the Lord was their priority. And then at the same time, David was a man who had some obvious weaknesses. Now, we were talking about this the other evening with the men's group, and uh, one of David's most obvious weaknesses was obviously his, his weakness for women. But now, let's be frank, I think just about every man I've ever met has that same weakness. I, maybe maybe not every man, probably just 99.9%, Right? We just haven't found our biggest mistakes in a biography that's recorded in the most read book in all history. But that's where David finds his. And we know when we looked at Second Samuel chapter 11 and Second Samuel chapter 12, as we spent time looking in those chapters, David caught a glimpse of Bathsheba bathing on a rooftop. And it wasn't so much that he caught a glimpse and then looked away. He caught a glimpse and then stared and kind of absorbed that image into his mind and into his heart, and his sinful heart longed to take her as his own, even though she was the wife of another man. And the scripture tells us very soon after that he, he committed adultery with her, and he impregnated her, he attempted to disguise his indiscretion, and then he arranged for Bathsheba's husband Uriah to be unfairly executed in battle. And then for a time, he thought he got away with all of it. He thought he got away with all of that. And one of the things we were talking about even the other night was the fact that it wasn't even just Uriah that died in that particular context. There were multiple men that died in that battle as he was trying to have Uriah executed. So you have a group of men that die, and you have all these different things taking place because of David's willful indiscretion. And then you have David trying to hide it through whatever means... Even if people lose their lives, he's trying to hide it no matter what, protect his own reputation, until the prophet Nathan was sent to David, and then Nathan confronted David about all of it. God had revealed David's hidden sins to Nathan, and Nathan addressed these hidden acts head on. So we spent some time last week talking about that specifically. Now, I, I think I asked this a week ago, but I'll ask it again. If you were David, what would you have done in that context when you're confronted by Nathan? Nathan. Would you have attempted to deny what you had done? You know, would you have attempted to deny what you had done with Bathsheba and what you had done to Uriah? Would you have tempted, uh, attempted to deny it? Would you? I, I also wonder this because David certainly was in a position where he had the power to do so. Would you have attempted to kill the messenger? You know, would you have thought? Huh, you're you know Nathan now knows about this, and I don't really want this getting out. Certainly don't want this recorded in scripture. Um, maybe I'd just take care of Nathan and get rid of him too. David was able to squelch his conscience enough to do that to Uriah. You know, what what would we have done if we were in that same spot? Or would we have confessed our hidden sins and repented of them? Because that's certainly the other option. That's the better option, right? Well, by God's grace at this point, David confessed, and he repented after being confronted. Now, there are a group of, of months that has now transpired, and David has had to live with the, the, the effects of trying to squelch his conscience for all that time, and it was eating him up inside. And here you have, you have Nathan confronting him, and so David gets to this spot, and he says, you know what? He just confesses it. He repents of it. And under the Holy Spirit's inspiration, you now have David writing down what's going on in his mind and in his heart in the midst of this season of repentance. And he writes it down in Psalm 51, which we just read together. And he does so to express his thankfulness to God for the healing and for the restoration that he experienced. But I think it's also here to aid us. I think it's helpful for us because it aids us in our confession. It it aids us in our repentance, showing us that it's wise, that it's safe to do so, it ends, or, it, or it aids us in our restoration as well. Because I think a lot of times when we're in the midst of those low seasons, even after we confess and repent, I think it's very helpful for us to be reminded that, that we're restored as well, because I think sometimes we struggle to even embrace that. And so what can we do when our sin becomes exposed, or we get to the spot where we can't bear the weight of it any longer, what can we do if we desire to experience restored fellowship with our Lord after embracing wickedness? Well, look at the pattern that we're given here in this portion of Scripture. One of the first things you see here is is David seeks God's mercy. He seeks the mercy of God. Let me reread verses 1 and 2. David says it this way. He says, "'Have mercy on me, O God,' according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now, let's pause there for a second. Just think about his words. Let his words reverberate in our minds. But I'll say what, you know, there are many people who have never who basically go through their life never seeking God's mercy, largely because they don't believe they actually need it. But without the mercy of God, we would be doomed. Scripture tells us we would be doomed to eternal condemnation, if not for the the mercy of God intervening on our behalf. Scripture also makes it clear to us that through faith in Jesus Christ, we become objects of God's mercy, where we were once considered objects of God's wrath. Can you imagine entering into eternity... As an object of God's wrath, would you want to be an object of God's wrath as you enter into your eternity? I certainly wouldn't. But through faith in Jesus Christ, Scripture makes it clear to us that we become objects of mercy. Well, you look at David's situation here. David was well aware of the fact at this point that he had messed up, that he had goofed this thing up big time. He knew that he deserved judgment, he also knew that he deserved condemnation. You can see that in the words that he says. He knew that he had no other hope than to seek the mercy of God in the midst of his sin. That was his only hope. So here you have him at the start of Psalm 51. He offers up a prayer for mercy. And what he does here is he clings to the knowledge that he has of the unfailing love of God. And isn't that a beautiful thing? You know, if if your mind gets fixated on anything, if your mind ever gets stuck on anything, isn't that a wonderful thing for it to get stuck on? The thought of God's unfailing love He clings to that, the knowledge of the unfailing love of God as he makes this plea, as he humbly asks the Lord to blot out his sins like like stains being removed from a garment. He wants to be cleansed so that he could be restored. And so these are the things he begins this psalm by praying for and seeking. And I imagine this was a huge relief to him at this point, because this is now a burden he's been carrying around for some time, and that starts to weigh on you. You know, if your conscience is troubled for a long time and you just try and go through life squelching that, it doesn't do good things. I think many people spend their lives carrying a weight of regret with them everywhere they go, is carry it with them everywhere they go, thinking that the shame that might come or the embarrassment that might come from exposing that regret would be greater than the internal tor- turmoil and weight that they feel all throughout the course of their life. And so they stuff it deep down. But the funny thing is, it comes out somewhere. Anything that you try, any like emotion or grief or anything that you try and stuff down, it's gonna leak out in some other way. And if you don't address it in healthy ways, it's gonna come out in an unhealthy way. And I think a lot of people go through life with the reminders of their sins deeply entrenched in their mind. It's too much for their minds and hearts to bear. And that eventually starts affecting all other areas of their lives. And so their relationships begin to suffer because they don't address it. Their drive and their sense of confidence in the midst of everything that they're called to do, it starts to diminish as well because their conscience is so heavy. And yet the solution has been staring them right in the face the entire time. Seek God's mercy. Come before the Lord. Seek His mercy. Don't carry a weight that has always been too heavy for you to bear. Seek God's mercy, hand your regrets over to Him. When we think about what Jesus came to this earth to do, Jesus came to this earth to bear the weight of our sin upon Himself at the cross. If that wasn't necessary, He wouldn't have done it. But He came to this earth to do it because it was exactly what we needed. And now you and I have the option to receive His gift of mercy... And find relief from the burdens that we're bearing. And when people finally grasp that, that's like the eureka moment in the life of any professing believer. When you finally get to the spot where you realize, wait a second, I used to think of God as just hating me. I used to think of God as being distant from me. I used to think about God in such a, a way that I just thought, oh, he must be just so displeased with me and not want to have anything to do with me. And and he can't wait to get me for all the things that I've done. And yet what did he do? His desire was to come and to take the weight of our sin upon himself so that that burden could be lifted from us, so that we could experience the joy of being an object of his mercy instead of living our life with that subtext in our mind, knowing that we were objects of wrath, under condemnation, deserving judgment. Yes, we deserve judgment, and yet Jesus took it for us so we don't have to experience it. That's what Jesus did on our behalf at the cross. And so here you have David giving us a pattern that's useful. If you're in the midst of one of those low seasons, start where he started. Seek God's mercy. And then right alongside of that, when you look at verses 3 through 5, you have him just admitting his sin. He just admits it. He just owns it, right? Look at what he says in verse 3 down to verse 5. He says, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. He's not hiding it anymore. He's my sin's ever before me. And then notice what he says here, he says, against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. It's a powerful statement that he makes here. He's basically saying, look, I I realize I'm a sinner and I've realized I've always been a sinner. But there are certain things that are just making it really, really obvious right now. I have a good friend, Lorenzo. Lorenzo and I used to work at summer camp together when we were in college. And uh, I hope someday you get to meet him because if you do, just ask him to tell you stories about his childhood. You know how some people are just gifted storytellers? He could talk about anything he wants for the longest time, and I will always find it either interesting or entertaining. And I remember my friend Lorenzo once telling me a story of something that took place when he was about 10 years old. And he was asked by his aunt to do her a favor that probably was a little much for this 10-year-old to do, but he agreed to do it. She asked him to carry some glassware from her house to his grandmother's house. So the aunt's mother, she said, could you carry this from my house to her house, so we don't have to carry it, and so she doesn't have to come and get it. You're strong now. You can carry this, and he agreed to do it, and so she packed it up in a bag, and everything looked like it was really good, and then he started walking that bag From his aunt's home, which wasn't too far away from his grandmother's home, but he walked that bag filled with all this family glassware over to the grandmother's house. And along the way, I think the way he tells it in the story, he took maybe just a little bit too aggressive of a step off a curb, or maybe he hopped off a curb. And when he did that, the second he did that, he could he could hear the sound of shattering in the bag, and he thought, "Oh no, oh no." And he's picturing as he's walking. Step at a time to his grandmother's house because what he what he also knew is that 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 glassware was very sentimental and very important to his grandmother and she had loaned it out to her to her daughter and now it was coming back but it wasn't coming back the way that it was sent and uh, you know he knew it was damaged he knew his grandmother was going to be ex- uh, upset and he said that his first thought was maybe I try and hide it somehow and then he realized okay there's literally no way I can hide it. My aunt called my grandmother and said, I am right now presently carrying this over to her house. So when he got to the house, he just walked in and he handed her the bag. He hadn't even opened the bag to look and see inside. He already knew what the carnage was going to be. And he handed it to her and uh, he said, "I, I I think it's broken. I'm pretty sure it's broken. And she said, what do you mean it's broken? It was all packed up in here. He's like, no, I'm pretty sure it's broken. And, he, and it was. It was smashed. It was destroyed. It was unrepairable. And he felt bad about his mistake. But as he confessed this to his grandmother, one of the things that, that he knew remained true was the fact that his grandmother loved him. That wasn't going to change. He knew his grandmother loved him in the midst of this confession. And I think admitting our sin to God is somewhat similar to my friend Lorenzo's experience, because when we struggle with things, and when something in our life that's sinful becomes obvious to us, and and we know it doesn't belong there, I think our first temptation is going to be to hide it. I think that's what David attempted to do, obviously. I think that's what we're oftentimes uh, attempting to do. We're tempted to hide it. But here's the thing, nothing can be hidden from God. There's nothing that can be hidden from God. It doesn't even make sense for us to attempt to hide something, so we might as well admit what we've done and just call it out into the light. One of the beautiful things about calling our sin out into the light is the fact that it loses its power over you the moment you do that. It holds its power over you when you choose not to do that. The second you call it out into the light, it loses its power over you. And amazingly, God's love for us never changes, even in the midst of our darkest moments. Again, David was looking at this and saying, You know what, Lord, you are the God of unfailing love. How helpful would it be for you and for me to recognize that that's God's nature when it's time for us to admit our sin? The fact that He's a God of unfailing love, His love for us never changes, even in the midst of our darkest moments. Again, David had been thinking about his sin for a while at this point. It was something that had been eating him up, but now he was willing to admit that he had sinned against the Lord, that he understood. That by nature, this was an ongoing struggle in his life. And so, this really wasn't going to be the only time he needed to do this, but this was the biggie for him. Our best option when our sin becomes clear to us is to just admit it. It is pointless to try and hide it, even though I've done it and you've done it as well. But when we admit it, let's remember we're confessing this to one who loves us. And in the midst of that, we get to experience what David experienced when you look at the next group of verses where you see him finding joy again. I love what it tells us when you look at verses 6 through 12. David says it this way. He says, Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. By the way, this next part here, did you ever sing this as a song growing up? Do you have the song, kind of like the tune in your head? Right? Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. You ever met someone who seemed to exist in what I'll describe as maybe like a a perpetually downcast state? Do You ever meet somebody that just that seems to be their demeanor all the time? I remember observing that tendency in certain adults. When I was a teenager, I noticed there were certain adults that seemed to be perpetually downcast and I was still in high school and happened to comment about how that bothered me. And I, 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 bothered, I, I mentioned that to a, a friend. She was a few years older than me. And, and uh, I said, you know, I, I, I don't like seeing this. Like, they just seem perpetually sad or down or discouraged or depressed. I, I said, I don't really like that. And she said, well, there's a good reason they're that way. There's a good reason for that behavior that you're seeing. And I never asked her what she thought the good reason was. <laughs> I I think I'm a better listener at this season of my life than I was then. I I think I just was interested in talking. (laughs) And uh, I never, now I'm like really curious. But at this point now, I'm sure she has no memory of that conversation. But now I'm really curious, like what did she think the reason for that was? I never asked her what she thought the reason was. I just replied, I don't care what their reasons are. That was my response. I was like, I don't care what their reasons are. I just hope I don't find myself doing the same thing when I'm at that season of life. That's literally what I said. Now, as I've aged, my opinions have become a little more nuanced, okay? I have a little... I don't have much. There's not a whole lot of of, uh, nuance in my life, but some nuance, right? It's like, do I like the spicy, sweet chili Doritos or the new barbecue flavor better? I don't know. Or do I just stick with original? I do have some nuance, all right? My opinions on deeper level things have nuanced a little bit too. Again, not much but I can say I think I know why some people seem perpetually down. I think this applies to some people. I don't think this is a universal statement, but I do think it's a reason why some people are continually down. And I think the reason is this. I don't think they understand what joy is or where it can be found. Is that a fair statement? I think there are some people that are in a state where they seem perpetually down because they don't really understand what joy is or where it can be found. Now you have David praying something here about joy. He says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Isn't that a beautiful statement or a beautiful request to make of God? Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Where's joy found? Real joy can only be found in a state of surrender and complete trust in the goodness of God. If my life is not surrendered to him, I think I will find myself in a state of internal conflict that doesn't produce joy. If I refuse to trust that he's good, I'll question every test or every trial that comes my way, and then I'll blame God for the outcomes that differ from my preferences or my expectations. And it would be very easy for me to take my life in a direction like that, apart from his intervention, apart from him convincing me, that's a bad idea. And one of the things that we get to see as we look at the message of Scripture is it's communicated in a variety of ways and through a variety of examples and a variety of lives that get profiled in Scripture. God delights in restoration. He delights in restoration. He enjoys restoring the lost. He enjoys restoring the hurting. Here you have David confessing that in the midst of his struggles... He actually had spent some time entertaining thoughts of God casting him away. This idea of God casting him away from his presence or removing the anointing of the Holy Spirit from upon him. I think he may have wondered about these things because he had observed what had happened to his predecessor, King Saul. You have King Saul going through seasons of rebellion, and then the the kingdom was eventually taken away from him. and, And you could see that Saul was tormented in his mind and in his heart for a long period of time. And so you have David saying... Lord, I deserve that same outcome, but I'm praying that you don't give that to me. I'm praying that that doesn't become my outcome. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Remind me that real joy can only be found in a state of surrender and complete trust in your goodness. Now, I'm grateful that you and I, living as believers under the new covenant, can testify to the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, and the fact that His presence with us is a permanent reality for those who have been redeemed and restored through faith in Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. Praise God for the, the ministry of His Spirit, because the Spirit who remains in your life will counsel you, and He will comfort you, and He will point you in the direction of truth, and He will help you find joy in Christ again, if that's something that you've been losing sight of. And you have David here at a moment where he's like, I've been losing sight of the joy that I've been called to experience this entire time. And he's saying, Lord, help me to stop losing sight of this. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. That's something that'd be really useful for you and I to pray. You know, sometimes, and I was even having a conversation about this with someone this morning, sometimes when you've been a believer for a long time, we were talking about the joy that it is to experience conversation with someone who is a pretty new believer And then you get to experience the joy of them discovering things for the first time that you've known maybe for decades. And it's like you're discovering it brand new all over again. And I think interacting with new believers in Christ is one of the ways that the Lord restores the joy of our salvation. Because we get to watch another believer experience that joy and find that joy in Christ. And we're reminded of what a relief it is to find that joy in Jesus. What ends up happening... When that joy becomes obviously present in your life, you find it hard to shut up about it. Don't you find yourself in a spot where you're like, I have to talk about this. And I think it's very logical that you then see David talk about this when you look at verses 13 to 15, because basically he starts encouraging the reader here to tell someone what God has done for you in response to the joy that he's restored. He says, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Then he says, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Then he says, O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. So my wife is downstairs helping with Children's Church, I believe, this morning, which always provides a great opportunity for me to talk about her. And um, I am amazed at God's foreknowledge and how he works things out. And I'm so grateful that he gave me a wife with a listening ear. And pity that woman, please. Because she has to hear me go on and on and on about some of the dumbest things. And I don't realize they're dumb when I'm saying them, but when I replay the conversations back in my mind, I'm like, she sat and listened to me talk about that for a half an hour. Like coding a web page. I was talking about I was talking about code the other day. And she's like actively listening with the mm-hmms and showing me genuine interest. And I'm fascinated. I'm like, yeah, because if you make the border radius 18. Like, look what it does to the image. It does that. And then you make the thickness of this. You put that at a four. I was like, I love how that came out. And I'm, all, I'm talking about that after. I'm like, you are a nerd, sir. You are a very, very big nerd. And I often joke with my family. I often, I, I like, if I get excited about something, I cannot shut up about it. I guess I can. I guess I technically have the capacity to shut up about it. I just don't seem to, right? So... I find myself just telling everybody I know about whatever the current thing I'm excited about. And I go from thing I'm excited about to new thing I'm excited about. That has been the pattern of my life. I don't seem to run out of things to talk too much about. And uh, that could be a tool that gets used for good, right? You're like, hey, surprise, I became a preacher. Not a surprise. Um, I think David had the same propensity. At least that's what I'm going to tell myself when I look at a portion of Scripture like this. I think he had the same propensity. He was a man of many words. And he was eager to tell others what the Lord had done for him. He was very eager. Right? Here you have David saying, you know, what what should I do with what the Lord's done for me? Well, his solution wasn't keep it to myself. His solution was, let me think of many, many ways that I could tell people about it. I'm going to write it. I'm going to speak it. I'm going to proclaim it. I'm going to do all of this, right? He spoke of teaching others who were caught in sin the ways of God so that they too could return to God. And you have the benefit of this being written. He's doing it as he's declaring that he wants to do it. You know, he's writing it down as he says, I want to do this more. I want to make it known. And he also talks about this idea of like singing, right? He sang of God's righteousness as he contemplated his own deliverance. He declared God's praise because the Lord had been abundantly good to him. And I think the Lord seeks the same response from our mouths. I think it begins with people closest to you in your home, and every context you're in. But I think if you're conv- convinced that he's been good to you, you should tell somebody about it. You should tell somebody about it. I had somebody, I kind of weirded somebody out the other day, which is like a normal pattern for me. The I didn't mean to. Um, But somebody asked me a question of of why I do something that I do, right? Just a, a personal pattern they noticed in my life. And my initial response, I just gave them the honest response. I said, I do that as an act of worship unto the Lord. And this was to somebody who, under their own admission, said they're not a very religious person, but they asked me, why do you do that? And I say, I do that as an act of worship unto the Lord. And then it, uh, it occurred to me immediately upon saying that, I was like, oh, uh, so that was weird for you. <laughs> like, as I said that, I was like, oh, I just weirded you out. It's like, okay, well, sometimes I talk, sometimes I weird people out. It is what it is, right? But at the same time, should it be a secret that the Lord has changed our hearts and changed our lives? And should it be a secret that you're slightly excited about the fact that the Lord has delivered you from what you thought you were going to be crushed by? Isn't it a wonderful thing to just be able to testify to the fact that the Lord not only turned your old life around, He gave you a brand new life. And it's a life that can't be snuffed out. He gave you a new kind of joy. It's not the kind of joy that people oftentimes speak of. It's a joy that, that can't be ruined by your experiences or your trials or your difficulties. It's a joy that's anchored in Him, this genuine trust you have in His goodness and your willingness to submit yourself over to Him. It produces a lasting form of joy that's anchored in his nature, not in our experiences. And when our minds and our hearts start grasping that, it's hard not to talk about that. It just sneaks out of your mouth. Sometimes you plan to say it. Other times it's unplanned moments, but it comes out of our faces, hopefully into the ears of somebody else, and then directly into their heart so that they too could give praise to the God that we love and serve and who's done so much for us. Then you have David finishing up with one more thought, and I think it's a useful spot for us to finish up with as well. But as he winds down this psalm, as he ends it, as he concludes it here, and he demonstrates this way that he is responding to what the Lord is doing for him, this forgiveness, this restoration, he basically encourages us to understand what God really wants from us. The way he says it is this, when you look at verse 16 down to the end, he says, "'For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good design Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings.'" and whole burnt offerings then bulls will be offered on your altar. Now, when you read through the Old Testament, you could see that God put a temporary sacrificial system in place during that era of history. It was a temporary solution that pointed to the ultimate solution. The ultimate solution was Jesus Christ. The only blood sacrifice that that could truly atone for the sin of man was the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross whose blood was spilled to pay for our transgressions. And now, even though David was living during the era of animal sacrifice, he understood that God was looking for something much deeper than the spilled blood of an animal. He understood that that God was looking for something a lot deeper than that. That was never meant to be a permanent solution for our deepest problems. And as the Holy Spirit gave David the words to, to pen in this psalm, You have the Holy Spirit inspiring him to express what God really wants from us. And that's a heart that's open to his intervention. It's a heart that's open to his presence. David said, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. God wanted this from David, and he wants it from us as well. Now, let me say this as we wrap up. I don't know if it feels safe or if it feels dangerous for you to pour out to your heart to pour your heart out to God in confession and repentance. I don't know if that feels safe or if that feels dangerous to you, but I can assure you that's exactly what the Lord wants you to do. To pour your heart out to him in confession. To pour out your heart to him in repentance. It may feel dangerous, but it's actually it's actually the safer choice. May feel naturally more risky, but it's actually less risky. Jesus didn't come to this earth for us to continue to bear the burden of our sin. He didn't come to this earth for us to continue to bear the weight of that in our own strength. He came to this earth to take it upon himself so that we could experience true joy and true liberty. That's what Jesus offers to us. As we trust in him, we experience joy. We experience liberty. We experience the lifting of the burdens that we've been trying to carry throughout the course of our natural days. So if your heart is heavy today, open it to Jesus. Open it up to him. Unload whatever is weighing you down or whatever you tried to bury in the recesses of your mind or whatever's in a file cabinet. Weigh in the back because you don't want to think about it, but the more you try not to think about it, the more you end up thinking about it. And don't go through the rest of your life trying to bury those things. Bring it to the Lord. Admit whatever it is. Confess it so you can move beyond it. Confess it to Him. Admit it. He already knows. Unload what's been weighing you down, because it's going to sneak out in some other way, and the way that it sneaks out is going to be unhealthy, unwise, and not beneficial to you or to those that get impacted by it unload it to Christ, and then accept the work of restoration and renewal that He wants to do within you. He wants to restore us. He wants to renew us. It's not His desire to cast us away from Him. It's His desire to draw us close to Him, and that we would walk in unhindered fellowship with Him. And if there's something that's been hindering your fellowship for a long time, there's something that you feel like it's been dragging you down because it's your low moment. Understand you're in good company. David understood it. And I'll tell you a secret everyone else sitting in this room understands it as well. Every one of us has that low moment. And you could either confess and repent it to the Lord, or you could hold on to it in your own strength and let it weigh you down. But again, what did Christ come to this earth to do? He came to take it from us. So that we could be new in him. And we can rejoice that that's God's desire for us this morning. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your goodness and for the fact that in the midst of all the things that we endure in, in, this, in this season of life and the previous seasons of life that we've gone through, Lord, we're grateful for the fact that you are with us. We're grateful for the fact that when we look at a portion of Scripture like we just spent time looking at this morning, that we see restoration, and we see forgiveness. We we're given a glimpse of your heart toward a man who was caught in sin. And Lord, I realize that the it seems like the majority of people that I have interacted with in this world have this thought that that you take some sort of sick pleasure in crushing people, that you take some sort of sick pleasure in destroying people and casting them away from you. And then we see in Scripture that that actually would grieve your heart, that it's not your desire that humanity live at a distance from you. You created us in your image and have given us the opportunity to glorify your name and have fellowship with you and enjoy you forever but Lord, there have been seasons in our life where we have embraced the things of this world, and we've been convinced that somehow those things were going to satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts, and then we embraced those things, made those mistakes, and now we've got these big regrets that weigh us down. And Lord, there were certainly a whole bunch of things that David dealt with because of the decisions that he made, but one of the things that he could say was wonderful was when he experienced the joy of his salvation yet again as he was able to experience what it meant to be cleansed of sin instead of holding on to that sin. And so, Lord, I pray for every man and woman in this this place. I pray for every child here in this place. I pray for each of us that you'd help us to know you and to experience the relief that it is to give our burdens ultimately over to you through your son, Jesus Christ, who bore those burdens on the cross Lord, you tell us in your word that the wages for sin, in, uh, the wages for sin is death, but, the, but your gift is eternal life through your Son, Jesus Christ. So, Father, we pray that we would receive the gift of eternal life, and as people who have received that gift, that we would walk among the living and not let our minds just linger among the dead because we're stuck in a spot that we, we really don't belong in. So thank you, Lord, for bearing our burdens. Thank you for taking... Our anxieties and our fears and our low moments and carrying them upon yourself, thank you for atoning for them, and thank you for restoring us. And Lord, we, we thank you for the example that we're given in the portion of your word that we looked at this morning from psalm fifty one and we pray that that among the takeaways that, that we take from our time together and looking at it that we would realize that it's absolutely safe and wise and beneficial to pour out our hearts to you, because you will do good things with what we entrust to your care. So we entrust ourselves to you now, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to today's episode. For more resources to help you in your walk with Christ, please visit DesireJesus.com. Has fear stolen your peace? I'm Jennifer Slattery, lead host of the Faith Over Fear podcast, helping you fight your fears and grow your faith. Subscribe at lifeaudio.com.